Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. This is Julie Henrik, as the Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and today I'm delighted to welcome David Heshko Wombly Wyden to the podcast. David is an enrolled citizen of the Chicago Lakota Nation. His acclaimed novel, Winter Counts, was published by Echo in 2020. The book has been nominated for the Edgar Award, the Anthony Award, the Barry Award, the Thriller Award, McCavity Award, Seamus Award, Hammett Prize, and it was the winner of the Lefty and Spur Awards. The novel was a New York Times Editor's Choice, a main selection of the Book of the Month Club, an Indie Next pick, and named a Best Book of 2020 by NPR, Publishers Weekly, Library Journal, and other magazines. He lives in Denver, Colorado with his family, and I'm delighted to have a conversation with him today. David, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Oh, it's my pleasure and honor to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I'm really looking forward to this conversation because you've had quite the debut year, and I want to talk about that. But um, let's start with your writing journey and and what that what that's been like, because I think that's helpful for people um, to know. You know, I just read a whole list of awards that you're nominated for and some that you've won, and it's all really great. But getting there is is a different journey and is, is your own journey. That's what you can control. But it's, um, I mean, it's wonderful, but it's also not what all this is about, because it's the writing and it's the voice and it's the story you're telling that is also so important to the um, to the field. So, you know, let's just talk about you as a writer. When did you say to yourself, I want to write a novel? Well, thank you, you know, for that great question. My, my writing journey maybe was different than a lot of my friends because I came to writing later in life. So I grew up, I'm an enrolled citizen of the Sichangu Lakota Nation, in English, that's the Rosebud Sioux Tribe. Uh, it's in South Dakota, but I grew up in Denver. Uh, but I would spend summers on the Rosebud Reservation. I'm a first-generation college student, and I grew up in, you know, fairly challenging financial circumstances. We didn't even have a library anywhere near in the poor neighborhood that I grew up in. So we had a bookmobile that would come every Friday, and that, that was the best day of the week for me as a kid because I'd load up on 10 books and read them all, uh, by the time it rolled around in next week or two weeks later. And and so I grew up obsessed with books and reading as an escape from the pretty rough circumstances that I was in. But when you when you grow up, you know, poor, I guess, um, you you don't think that you can take on a luxury such as writing. So mm-hmm. I'm the first one to go to college in my family. So I chose a very practical path because I did not want to follow in the footsteps of my parents. I did become an attorney and I practiced for a number of years. And then I decided that I really should be a teacher. And so I got another degree to become a, a college teacher. And indeed, I did that for a number of years. I'm, and I still do it. In fact, it's my day job. I teach Native American studies and political science. I And... Um, Wow. Yeah, but but so anyways, where the writing comes in is I've I never stopped reading and I never stopped wanting to be a writer. 
But at some point there, when I was about 40, I said, you know, I think it is time that I do this. If I'm going to do it, now is the time. And so indeed, I went, I was in Indiana at the time, and I went to a local writing center, the Indiana Writer Center, and I took some classes there, and I started learning how to write a scene, how to put together dialogue, learning what a plot is and how to structure one. And I really had a lot of fun, and I just felt like, yes, finally, I, I can do this. Um, and then uh, one of the instructors there said, you know, you really need to go and get a, a Master of Fine Arts degree. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. I said, I, uh, I, I'm done with school, and I'm too old and everything else. Um, she said, uh, no, 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 you don't have to move anywhere. You don't have to move to Iowa or anything there's the, there, there are these programs called low residency programs where mm -hmm. you work from a distance and you go there once or twice a year to where the campus is. And I'm like, oh, well, okay. Um, I was still very, very skeptical about the whole thing. Uh, but I did enroll at a school called the Vermont College of Fine Arts uh, in Montpelier, Vermont. And there I had the good fortune to study with some great people, including a gentleman who made me read all of the classics of crime fiction. Now, I had read a lot of crime fiction. It's always been my passion. But I had never really delved into Chandler, you know, the, the greats, mm -hmm. Jim Thompson. I had never gone to the greats. And he said, you're going to read all of these, and you're going to do a close study of them. And that was just mind-blowing for me. Um, and that was great. Now, I did end up transferring MFA programs because a new – low residency writing program opened up at the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe. And it's exclusively or pretty much exclusively for Native American writers. And so mm -hmm. that seemed to be the right place for me. Um, so I did finish up there. So all of that is long story long, um, my very, very long journey to figure out that I wanted to be a writer and to give myself the tools to be able to do so. Well, I love hearing this this origin story and your journey, and I'd love to unpack a little bit of it before we talk about why crime fiction, because <laughs> I always think that's an interesting part as well. But something you talked about with the uh, was the the questioning or the ability to say I can do this or this is for me as well, and I think that that's a barrier that's in front of a lot of people um, when we talk about the business part of writing. You know, you may be writing on your own, but when you talk about the business, there are many real barriers in front of writers, um, but there are also barriers of just confidence or of knowledge or of, of understanding the, the journey. And I think it's really interesting that you um, went and got your, your MFA um, to, to sort of really establish yourself because at that, at that point in your life, that's, that's part of the journey as well. Um, but can we talk a little bit more about that and these perceived and real barriers in the business. We're going to talk about publishing a little bit later, but um, this is my long-winded way of saying, you know, I want people to who are listening to this to to hear that you you started doing this at forty, and you you made that that decision and and built your path. But it took you till 40 to say, I, this, is, this is an option for me as well. It did take me a long time. And, and that's just because I, I raised two kids. You know, I was raising yeah. two boys. I was divorced. I was a single dad for a while. 
Um, I, I, you know, being a professor is a very time-consuming thing when you're trying to get what we call tenure. Um, I, I have a, a, a scholarly book out on the U.S. Supreme Court that three people have read ever, you know. And so, you know, all of this, it just, it, I had to, to follow that path for a while until I felt that I really was in a space that I could go down the artistic path. Mm -hmm. But I want to add something that I don't think I've ever said in any of the interviews that I've done over the last year. Even after I got my MFA, I did not feel that I was established. Far from it. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I, uh, I got my MFA. Um, I actually took a break in the middle just to deal with some family stuff. Um, yeah. But I, I was literally on the verge of giving up creative writing in about 2017. About, 2000, about 2017, I had written some short stories and published a handful. And I think they were okay. Um, but I saw a lot of my former classmates. Tommy Orange is one of them. He's not a crime writer, but he's done pretty well with his uh, his fiction novel, literary fiction novel. And I saw a lot of people that were just really having some success. And I I I didn't know if I had the chops to sit down and really write a novel. I knew I could do good things in academic writing because I'd had some success there. And in fact, I had a contract to write a textbook. And so I said, well, I'm going to give myself one year. OK, I said, mm -hmm. I'm going to try and write a novel. I, I want to see if I can do this. And so I, I but if I can't get it done or if it doesn't sell, I'm going to give up creative writing and I'm just going to go back and write this textbook introduction to Native American studies. So I really was at a crossroads that I was mm -hmm. going to give up creative writing. Now, the lesson for anybody who might be listening is really don't give up. OK, don't give up. You need to have some some faith in yourself. That may be a cliche, but I'm telling you, it was really the case with me that I was on the verge of giving up. But I said, I'm going to give this everything I have for a year. And indeed, I got up at 4 a.m. every day for about a year uh, before my kids got up and started making their demands. And I just pounded out this novel and and something happened along the way because it started to get better and better. Um, and we can talk about the publishing journey later. But but I just, you know, if you're listening to this out there and you're thinking about giving up, I just want you to think of the story that I'm telling you that, you know, just hang in there and have some faith in yourself. So. Well, and writing is such a solitary activity, but you you also in going through your MFA program in other ways and Sister to Crime is one way um, to meet other people who are on a similar journey because you need. You need a community to help you understand what this is as well. I think that's right. And that was one of the mistakes that I made was not getting a community early on. I, I had some friends from my MFA program, but they scattered to the winds. Um, and I really wish that I had joined Mystery Writers of America and Sisters in Crime much, much, much earlier because they are such fantastic organizations with wonderful, supportive people. I am so honored to be an ally to the amazing writers in Sisters in Crime. And so it, it really has given me the community that, that I think that I needed and I really value. So again, if anybody's out there listening and you're not a member, I urge you to join. I'm telling you, I just, I treasure all of these organizations and the community. When you, to 2017, you're having your moment, was was the book that came out the book that you were working on this whole time? I mean, you, you've written academic books, and that's not a simple journey, and that's 
that's its own path. And but that's writing. But was was this story the story that was calling you, or was this did you know is this your first novel that you wrote? It is. So this story <laughs> I have told before in a couple other interviews. So if anybody's heard me speak before, they're like, "Oh, Dave, we've heard this before." But <laughs> I, I I wrote a, a short story also called Winter Counts that I was pretty happy with, and I published that in. Uh, Oh, I think 2013. I wrote that in my MFA program. It, feature, it features Virgil Wounded Horse, the protagonist of my novel. And it was sort of the, the, the back, the skeleton of the novel. And I like the story, but the story, the, it ends by Virgil Wounded Horse dying. So I killed him off because I was trying to write a true noir story, you know, that was more of a tragedy. Um, and I liked this story and I thought it was the best thing that I had written to date in 2017. And the short story just stuck with me. And about, you know, 2017, early 2017, I said, you know, I think there's more to be done here with this short story. So I decided to expand it and see if I could revive him, <laughs> resuscitate him from the dead and turn this into a full blown novel. And I honestly was not sure if I could pull it off. And, that, and that's mm -hmm. just the truth. So it was a short story that I decided to expand to a novel length work. My first novel, yes. <laughs> well, but the character had been in in your mind or, or telling, because there's a magic to writing. I mean, we learn the mechanics, but there's a magic to it. So the magic is this character invading your imagination to the point where he wasn't happy being a short story. He wanted to be a novel. That's exactly right. He had been, the character had been rolling around in my head for a long time. And at times I'd be driving and I'd even be thinking, how would Virgil react to this situation or that situation, you know? So there is a magic, but there's certainly also a, a craft. And I now teach yes. writing. Yeah, I teach writing at a couple of different programs. And I try, I use a very nuts and bolts approach because I think that it is a craft that can be learned. And my writing teachers were great, but I kind of had to teach myself plot. I, I taught that on my own. I went to screenwriting books. Um, I went to the Save mm -hmm. the Cat series, which was wonderful for me. And, and plot, at least in my MFA programs, it really wasn't emphasized. It was more like character and, and, and prose. Um, so I teach my students nuts and bolts uh, techniques for how to construct a plot, how to do dialogue, you know, how to infuse your setting with, you know, certain elements. So, so I, I try to teach what, what I wished I'd been taught earlier. Now, having said that, my writing teachers were great, you know, and, and what they focused on was wonderful. But I, I give my students some, a little bit, a different perspective. And so what, this speaks to what your process is. I mean, everybody has different processes and it works, but I think learning different ways of doing it is also super helpful. So what's your process like when you're writing a book? You know, my process is I start obviously with the characters and the conflict. And, and that's what I think slowed me down a lot earlier is I didn't understand that you need a conflict. If there's not a conflict, you really don't have a story. And, and I mm -hmm. find that I was kind of floundering, and my students are as well, until I tell them. I, I have them do a writing exercise. I'm like, go get a conflict for me. Character A wants something, and character B is stopping him or her. Write that conflict out, okay, and really think it through. And then that opens up a gate for them. And then they can really start writing their story or their novel chapter. Or their, you know. And, and so my process is to start with conflict in the characters, and then I, I love 
save the cat. I've, I've been made fun of by some people. They think that maybe it's too simplistic, but it gives me a template to think how a three-act structure can work. And sometimes mm -hmm. if I'm stuck on a, on a plot point, I'll go to the save the cat template. I'm like, well, okay, let me just try this. Let me just try this. Mm -hmm. And it often will open things up for me. So my process is I do outline ahead of time and I do, it doesn't always stay the same, but I outline and I think through the conflict as much as I can. I understand other people start with character and voice and prose, but for me, I, I come at it from the opposite angle. And so why, why crime fiction? Well, I, I, I love it, first of all. It's always been what, what I've loved throughout my entire life. As a little kid, the earliest books I can remember reading are the Ian Fleming's James Bond novels. My, my dad, wow. Yeah, my dad loved them. And I would pick them up, these little pulp paperbacks, and I, and I love them. So it's always been a passion of mine. But I think that crime fiction really today is, is becoming kind of the preeminent genre. Um, I, I didn't coin this phrase. It comes from an interview the British critic uh, Craig Sisterson did. But I, I hope I can say this right. But one of his interview people said that, Crime fiction is now the voice of resistance, something like that. So in other words, I think crime fiction is where we're seeing really interesting issues of social justice. You know, mm -hmm. just a lot of interesting things are happening in crime fiction right now. Plus, it's just dramatic. It's just it's wonderful and exciting. So uh, nothing makes me happier than when I'm up late at night. It's like I have to find out what happens next. So <laughs> it's 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 just it's my passion. And would you classify your uh, Winter Counts as a thriller, as PI, as, you know, hybrid? How would you classify it? I would say it's, it's, it's being marketed as a thriller. So Echo, mm -hmm. HarperCollins, they're marketing it as a literary thriller, whatever that means. I don't know what that means. I just think of it as a, as a, a thriller. It's a story, you know, a Virgil Wounded Horse who's a hired vigilante on the Rosebud Indian Reservation. And he, he exists because of some laws that exist in real life on Native American reservations. Uh, Native nations are not allowed to prosecute felonies on their own lands. They have to call in the FBI and the U.S. attorney's offices to prosecute felony crimes. So even though Native nations are supposedly independent and sovereign, they are forbidden the power to prosecute serious crimes on their own lands, which is, that's outrageous in and of itself. But even more outrageous is that the U.S. Attorney's Office and the FBI, they declined to prosecute about 30 to 40% of all felonies. That means that these people, child molesters, rapists, murderers, are simply let, let free. They're let go. They're released. And they can commit crimes. So this is really harming the quality of life on many Native American reservations. So so this, so what has happened is vigilantes have sprung up on many reservations. You can pay them to go out and get some justice. So Virgil Wounded Horse, my fictional protagonist, he will beat up a child molester or somebody, a, a bad person, and he charges $100 for each bone he breaks and $100 for each tooth he knocks out. So this, this is obviously fits right into, I would say, the, the thriller genre, subgenre. So that's how I view it. But I just view it as, as hopefully just a, a cool story. Well, and it is a cool story, but in reading, you know, reviews and things that, um, 
that people talked about, a lot of people refer to the fact that they're learning things as well in reading it. How do you feel about that? About it, it being sort of looked at as this, um, another way to show injustice and, you know, about the education. I, 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 I was of mixed minds as I was reading it. So I wonder how you feel about that. I'm thrilled. Okay. I'm okay. absolutely thrilled that people are learning. In fact, that was one of my goals in writing this book because in my day job, I am an educator. I, I, yeah. I teach, you know, I, I sit in front of college students and I teach about these issues. The Major Crimes Act, which is the law I was referring to earlier, I teach about these issues. But, you know, I can teach a class of 30 students, you know, maybe half of whom are already asleep as I boringly drone on, you know. Or I can write a novel that hopefully, mm -hmm. you know, 50, 60, 70,000 people you know, that have bought the book and more in the library, you know, that, that read it, you know, you know, maybe, and then they tell their friends about it. So I'm thrilled that people are learning from it, not just about the broken criminal justice system on reservations, but what life is like for natives mm -hmm. on a reservation. A lot of people don't know about our customs, our spirituality, our culture. So I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled. Uh, if, if somebody, you know, I get fan mail every so often, fan email, and they're like, I didn't know this stuff, and thank you for educating me. So I, I'm quite gratified by it. That's great. That's great. Um, and do you, uh, in in writing these and getting your MFA and working in crime fiction, did, how did the MFA, both programs you were in, feel about crime fiction? Because sometimes they're not crime fiction friendly. Did you, did you, did you feel like you had to justify the genre or... I, I, that's a great question. I, they I, are not, um, and and that that I think is is a real flaw um, in many MFA programs that they're not friendly to genre, genre fiction, whether it's crime or spec fic or whatever. You know, I I think that's just a crying shame. Now, I was lucky because there was a gentleman at Vermont College of Fine Arts who's no longer there, who uh, I believe he won the Edgar, and so um, you know, so he was uh, obviously a yeah. crime writer. And he made me read these screenwriting books. He's like, Dave, your plots are no good, you know? And so <laughs> he was right. So he made me read all for my, my thesis, uh, my critical thesis. He made me read screenwriting books to learn how to create a plot. And he made me do a close reading of Chandler and Thompson and, and all of the greats. So I lucked out with, with him. Uh, at the Institute of American Indian Arts, I didn't, there aren't any crime teachers, writers there that teach crime fiction or write it, to my knowledge. Um, but the, the, the instructors I had there were, I think, wonderfully sympathetic. So okay. I did not, I never felt that there was any bias against me in, in the programs, but I have heard that from others, yes. And being a lawyer and having gone through a, a lot of different education programs, I, I think being a 40 plus student, you, you're absorbing more and you're more well, you're going to make it what you want it to be as well. Do you agree? I Yeah. Look, I was there to learn. You know, I was, yeah. I, I think some of my instructors, I don't think, I know they got mad at me because I would say to them, give me more to read, please. I want craft book suggestions. Give me, give me, give me, you know, and sometimes they got annoyed with me because I was there to learn and write, you know, some of my mm -hmm. classmates, you know, they were in their twenties, they were maybe more in a party mode, but I was there, you know, to become the best writer yeah. that I could be. And, and so I treasure the students that I have now. I teach in the MFA programs at Regis University here in Denver. 
um, and I'll be joining in a week uh, the Pan-European MFA program. Uh, they're meeting this year in Pennsylvania. And I'll, I'll, I haven't met any of these students yet, but if I have any of those students that want additional stuff, I will treasure them and I'll make sure that they get everything they need. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I mean, being called to be a teacher, I can I can hear it in your voice too that this is the other part that you wanna you wanna pass it on as a teacher and as a student. What what's the best advice you've gotten about writing, and what's the worst advice you've gotten? You know, I I, I hear this writing this this piece of writing advice a lot, which is write every day, and I feel that sometimes they they there's almost a sense of of shaming that if people don't write every day, um, and I heard this a lot, and I would often feel very bad about myself. It's like, oh, I'm not writing every day. But what I've learned is, you know, gosh, sometimes you can't write every day. I've got two kids that are teenagers, and, you know, these, these kids, it's, it's been a rough time for them. Um, they, we lived in New York, for, in Long Island, New, New York, and we, uh, uh, they lived through Hurricane Sandy, you know, and then the pandemic. And then my, my youngest one, not to put a downer on our talk here, he was in a school when there was a school shooting just two years mm. ago. So he was in uh, STEM school Highlands Ranch when two gunmen burst in mm. and started shooting and they killed one of his classmates. And he's just two classrooms over. Um, you know, this was a horrifying thing. Um, a terrible thing. I, I got a call from my ex-wife screaming, uh, you need to get to the school. There's been, there's been a shooting. I, we didn't know if Sasha had made it or not. It was a, you know, a terrible thing for a parent. And guess what? I didn't do any writing for a good long time. Okay. I yeah. was, I yeah. was traumatized by the way, my kid is fine, but I, I very much honor the young man who sacrificed his own life, who took down one of the gunmen. His, the young man was Kendrick Castillo. He was uh, three days away from graduation. He rushed one of the shooters, took shots in the chest, sadly passed away on the spot, but allowed another group of boys to disarm the shooters. And so we, we, we honor um, this young man, Kendrick Castillo. This was literally two years and one month ago. Um, so my son is, is fine, but you know, life happens. And I don't think you can always write. There are times you need just to deal with life circumstances. There are times that the creative work is not flowing. Those are times when you read or you do research or you edit or you do something. But I, I used to feel shamed that that I couldn't write every day. Now I realize, look, I'll write when, you know, when when it feels appropriate, when I feel that it's really flowing. And on those days that I can't, you know, I'll do some background research or something like that. So now you asked about the best advice. I, I, I hear this from my students a lot, my writing students. I tell them, to read the classics twice. And classics, whatever genre it is. I mean, if it's in crime fiction, go back to, I mean, I'm reading right now Tana French. I think she's one of the classics. Or, or go to Chandler, you know, go to Dashiell Hammett, whomever you view as the classics. But read them twice. Read it once for plot and zip through it and find out what happens. But then go back and do a close, slow reading. See what they're doing with dialogue, with structure, with setting, with prose. You know, it's that second reading that you're really studying from the masters and you're discovering, you know, how they construct this. Because, again, I, I view writing very much as, as a craft. And so mm -hmm. there's no better way to learn the craft than from studying from the master. So that's the, the best piece of advice that I got. And I pass it on to my students. It's great advice. It's also um, re 
it helps you learn more as you're learning a craft. It, you're not ever done. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of a lifelong apprenticeship when you're a writer or I worked in theater for a number of years. It's, it's, you're never done. You're, you're always learning. You can teach as well later on, but you're always learning. Ab- yeah. ab- absolutely. And I'm, I, I love what you said there that it's a lifelong apprenticeship because even now, you know, I've had a pretty good year, but I'm trying some new things. I'm trying to make my dialogue sharper. So I'm writing some plays right now. I'm, I'm uh, studying at the Kennedy Center uh, with uh, uh, virtually, uh, I was accepted to the Kennedy Center uh, Playwright Intensive. So I'm spending, uh, a, you know, a few hours a day um, writing some plays just to really sharpen my dialogue skills, you know, just mm-hmm. because, you know, I think we can always get better. And uh, so, yeah, so I love that. So it, it doesn't end once you've published a book or got an MFA or whatever. Well, and, and playwriting, I give you a ton of credit because that's a whole different skill set. Screenwriting, playwriting, you know, you you don't have backstory in a play. <laughs> You've got to tell the whole story in in dialogue or on the on the stage. And that's a it's an incredible skill. You know, I, I it, it is, the, you know, I'm, I'm just working on my first fumbling attempts, sad attempts at writing a play. And boy, you really have to stay in scene. You know, um, yeah. you can't cut at least the plays that I'm writing and studying. You you can't like cut from here to here to here. You have to really stay in a scene. And so it's forcing me to think about how can I build dramatic tension within mm-hmm. a scene without like cutting to this, this or that locale. So it is a different set of muscles, but I'm having a lot of fun with it. No, I'm, I'm glad that you're doing it. It's great. We, you, there need to be more playwrights out there trading different plays as well. Um, but it is quite the skill set. Um, so let's talk about your publishing journey. I mean, it's been, uh, it's been, as I said, all, huge congratulations on, on all these awards and, and nominations. But, um, you know, how did you get there? I mean, how did you, how did you move the, the publishing forward? Well, once, you know, as I said, uh, in 2017, I, I was literally on the verge of giving up creative writing because I hadn't had really much success at all, uh, but I'd been at it for a number of years, and I said, look, I'm going to really see if I can write this novel. So I really threw myself into it, um, and I, I went to some of these workshops, and that's another piece of advice that I'll give to folks that are still hanging in with us on this interview, you know, um, I did not go to a lot of these writing workshops early on, and they really energized me. I went to one for writers of color mm-hmm. called Vona, Voices of Our Nations, and I studied there with, uh, it's not a crime fiction conference, but it's uh, just a general writing conference. And, um, and, and I really got energized there. And then I went to the next year, the Tin House Writing Workshop uh, in, in Oregon uh, during the summer. And so these writing workshops really energized me and gave me the confidence that I needed to keep writing this novel. Now, a secondary benefit is I met my agent at one of these. I went to the AWP conference, the Association of Writers and Writing Programs conference, and they have a, uh, a program there called Writer to Agent. You sign up, um, you, you submit uh, a cover letter and 10 pages of your novel, um, and you can meet at these conferences with, with agents. Now, this is, this is done at a lot of different conferences, uh, but I went to the, the AWP conference and I had interviews with three agents 
And I didn't have a done book, okay? I was about, I don't know, 50,000 words in, and I was very clear about that in my cover letter. I didn't think anybody wanted anything to do with me because normally you need a finished book, a finished manuscript mm -hmm. to get an agent. But to my utter surprise, my current agent, the wonderful Michelle Brower of Avita's Creative Management, she met with me and she read the first 10 pages, which is all I'd sent her. She looks at me, we have a good talk, she kind of rubs her chin, she's like, okay, I'm gonna offer you representation. And I'm like, wow, wow. I'm like, well, I accept. <laughs> <laughs> so she really took a chance on me. Now, I hesitate to tell the story because I, I want listeners to know that this is not typical, okay? This is fairly unusual, okay? And Michelle, we talked about her later. She said, I could tell that you had the confidence and the dedication that you were gonna get it done. So I was willing to take a chance on you rather than wait for you to finish the manuscript and maybe mm -hmm. sign with some other agent. So once I signed with my agent, things really, really ramped up. Um, I, I went to a writing residency in New Hampshire where I spent a month in a cabin and I finished the book up there. And then I sent it to my agent and she, she sent, we gave it one more pass. Um, it went through a lot of passes, 18 revisions total. But, but once we got to the final uh, uh, version, we sent it out and we did have about six publishers interested. And so we were lucky enough, uh, the book was going to go to auction, but Echo HarperCollins came in with uh, what's called a preempt offer, um, which we accepted. So once I got the agent, it was, it was a fairly smooth journey, but before then it was rough. I won't, I won't deny it. Um, and so this is a, a, it's a wonderful story of, um, of great things happening, but you're, are you working on a new book or, or where are you on that? Because I love that this is happening for you on your debut, but sometimes that second novel can also be like, how do I capture lightning in a bottle twice? I'd be lying if I didn't say that, that that scares me because the book has been received quite well. It was nominated right. for the Edgar, the Anthony, uh, I don't know, 10 other awards. Um, yeah. um, it, just last week, I, run, I, I was fortunate enough to win the Spur Award by the Western Writers of America for the best contemporary novel. Um, and, and at the BoucherCon, we'll see about the Anthony and the Hammond Prize and all the others. Um, uh, but yeah, it puts some pressure on you, but I'm trying to move that pressure out of my head. I do have mm -hmm. another book coming because I signed a two-book deal with HarperCollins, and so they are quite eager to have the next book. So I've got it, you know, I'm working on it. I, I do have some short stories out there that involve Virgil Wounded Horse, mm -hmm. the character, and so uh, from Winter Counts. So yeah, um, it, it is, the second book is, is a scary one. I've heard this from a lot of people. And my thought is, what else can I do except put my head down and, and just try and get at it? And you, uh, is it, are you going to have this, any of the same characters in the second book or is it complete standalone? It, it, it's, it's all the same characters. So, oh, that's awesome. So it's a second book in what could be a series? If, if the second book does well, I would love for it be, to be a series. All I know is I'm, you know, I have a contract for book two. You know, if the book flops, then maybe that's the end of Virgil Wounded Horse. You know, I would love for it to be a series. There, there will be all of the same characters are coming back, plus a couple of new, really cool characters that I've created and I've fully fleshed out. So it's it's going to be the same characters, but 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 even more, even more. So I'm very excited. I'm about a third of the way through it. 
I think your readers are going to be very happy that, that it's a series or there's a second. So let's just be positive and say okay. it's going to be tremendously successful. Thank you. <laughs> it's going to put your grandchildren through college. How's that sound? Well, let's just focus on my kids because they're, they're uh, my oldest is 16. Yeah. And so yeah. we're You're in that, that age. right now. So. <laughs> um, well, I, you know, it's an interesting uh, place that you're in as a writer, too. I'm thinking, uh, you know, when I hear your story of what your son went through and what you went through as a parent, that informs your writing and is going to inform your writing. When you, um, when you talk about, you know, spending summers on a reservation, that informs everything about you. So you've got a unique voice in crime fiction, but is it unique, David, or is it we're just not, we don't have enough, um, you know, Native American crime writers being represented and being published right now? You know, we don't. And I have been making a call for more Native crime writers out there. Uh, for some reason, many Native writers tend to gravitate towards traditional literary fiction, which is great. I, I read that too. Mm -hmm. I love Updike. I love Cheever. I love Larry McMurtry. I guess he's not literary fiction. Maybe he is. Um, you know, um, I would say he's literary. Okay. Well, you know, I, he would probably call himself a Western writer. I don't know. Yes, he would. Uh, but, would but you know, I, I have been calling for that. I, I want to be clear here. There are some great ones out there. My friend Marcy Rendon yeah. is a wonderful writer. I think she's up in Minnesota. Um, you know, she's got some great books out and she's doing some stuff. And, and I know there are some others around there and especially up in Canada. I know there are some indigenous mm -hmm. First Nations writers that are doing some great crime fiction. So I want to be clear here. I am not the only native crime writer yeah. far from it. Having said that, I would love for there to be a groundswell of new indigenous writers that are writing, you know, spec fic, that are writing lots of different things you know, I want to see a thousand flowers bloom. Um, Angeline Boulay is Boulay, I think is how she says it. She has a, a cool YA book out right now that I think is crime adjacent. And so, you know, there are wonderful, wonderful things happening, and I'm doing everything I can. Um, I have mentored a number of emerging indigenous writers, so I'm doing what I can, and I'm a, a judge for the Eleanor Taylor Bland Award. And so, yeah, yeah. So we're, we're right in the middle of going through the submissions right now where some of them are so wonderful, most of them, you know. And so what an honor it is to support the organization through the Eleanor Taylor Bland Award. So, yes, I, I is my voice unique? It's only unique in that I, I, I believe I'm the only Lakota crime writer. I hope mm -hmm. to be proven wrong, though, soon. I hope there will be many others, as well as from the other 600 Native nations that exist in the USA. I, I, yes, and that's exactly the point that I, I want people to recognize that we need we need to have so many voices out there and so many writers supported that it's not unique. It's it's just the norm. It's just another way of of reading about a story. Um, but but it's telling us all a story that we can learn from or we can just experience a new world. It's it's exciting times. Agreed. Agreed. What you said earlier, I think, about crime fiction is 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 true as well. It is we are on the cusp of, I think, a golden age of of crime fiction here, or in the middle of one, because there's so many fabulous people having opportunities. I hope so. I hope so. I just read a wonderful book by my friend uh, Sean Cosby. He publishes under S. A. Cosby. You know, uh, his new book is called Razorblade Tears. I just finished it last week. I wrote a little bit about it. 
It's great. It, it, it covers issues of racism and homophobia. You know, I mean, and, 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 and then there are also crime writers that aren't taking on big social justice issues, but are just illuminating wonderful new areas of the heart and, and crime. Yeah. And so it's all over the map. And I mean, to me, I think the most exciting work being done right now in literature is in crime fiction. But of course, I'm biased. So, <laughs> Well, we're glad that you're, you're doing it and your students are very lucky to have you as a teacher. What, um, you know, wrapping this up and thank you for your time. You know, what would you... Uh, what advice would you give your younger self on this journey or your, you know, the person who was going to give up just four short years ago? You know, um, you didn't. But what, what do you wish you'd known earlier? I wish I could go back and tell my younger self just to have some faith that if you put in the work and if you create and find your community, that it will pay mm -hmm. off. You know, I think for so long I just hold myself up. And I didn't really reach out to others. And I, and I know that that was the wrong path. And I, I, I wish I could have saved some time, you know, and, and started writing much earlier and found this wonderful community so much earlier. So that's, that's the number one. And, and folks, if you're listening now, find a community and, and honestly trust in yourself. The work will come if you just let it happen. It's great advice. It's great advice. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was my pleasure. And thank you. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast. <laughs>